hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, everybody, Jonathan Warren Pagan again, if you forgot who I am. Um, and I'm so glad to be worshiping with all of you today, and I'm so grateful to be meditating on God's word with you today. I want to start by talking about a beautiful church in Florence, Italy, called Santa Maria Novella Church. And Cheyenne, if you could advance the slide one more, there you go. Um, it's going to be a little hard for you to see, but at least you have a visual aid. You can kind of see what I'm talking about. It has an unusual painting in this church called the Holy Trinity. And it's by the 15th century Renaissance artist Masaccio. The painting is this really interesting example of a popular Renaissance painting style called Sacra Conversazioni. I think, I think. <laughs> Any Italian speakers in the room? I don't know. That was my best guess. <laughs> it's a style that takes this really kind of traditional religious scene and places the artist or patrons who commission the art or, or even like contemporaries from the artist's time period in the scene. So the Holy Trinity is this kind of straightforward depiction of the crucifixion um, with the Apostle John and Mary at the foot of the cross in accordance with how the Gospel of John tells the story. But then on the sides of the painting, you can see there's like these two other figures and like scholars speculate that those are the people who commissioned the painting. So it's this really cool kind of example of this Renaissance style. But actually what makes this painting unique is what Masaccio puts underneath the crucifixion scene. So you can kind of see it. You see it looks like almost like a stone altar right there. And then inside of the altar, there's a, there's a sepulcher. There's like a body buried there. There's a cadaver inside of that sepulcher and it's a skeleton. And on the inside of the sarcophagus, if you could see it, there's a plate, and it, and it says in Italian, I once was what you are, and what I am, you will be also. That's pretty sober. <laughs> but so people were invited, you know, as you come into this church, it's like a focal point in the church, and so you're invited to come and kind of meditate on this scene, but also to meditate on what's written inside of that sarcophagus. So they're invited not only to ponder kind of the meaning of Christ and to be moved by his sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, but they're also being summoned and addressed personally to remember that they're going to die. Modern societies, by contrast, are set up so we have as little to do with death as possible. We, by and large, we don't live with our elderly in America, and so many people are actually even unfamiliar and are profoundly uncomfortable with the processes of aging and dying. A few years ago, I got an invitation um, to attend a performance of Handel's Messiah at this Christian community called the Bruderhof outside of Pittsburgh. It's a really profound community. Um, and they do this performance of Handel's Messiah every Advent. It's pretty cool. But the thing that's most striking to me about this community and, and of the experience of being in that space is that all of their elderly and infirm live with them, not in nursing homes. So the children, the adults, they're kind of running around inter inter interacting with um, these older folks who are somewhere in the process of dying or at least in aging. Um, and, and, you know, that's not how I grew up. And it's not how my kids are growing up, for better or for worse. But the experience set me wondering about the difference that experiencing aging and infirmity in that way made for those children and the young adults who are growing up inside of that community. The physician and theologian Alan Verhey has a book called The Christian Art of Dying. I think it's already, like, already a really striking title, right? Um, but he says that our unfamiliarity with death has made it wild and threatening to us. When asked how they would like to die, this is what he says in the book, most, and that's not surprising to me at all, by the way, what I'm about to say. Most people in America respond that they would like to die suddenly, unconsciously, unaware, and in their sleep, right? Just like, get it over with. I don't want to have to know what's happening, right? 
But this is really interesting because it's in striking contrast with the whole Christian tradition where the idea of dying suddenly and unprepared is one of the worst fates that could befall you. For Christians, there's always been what's called an ars moriendi, an ars dying, an art of dying well. And it involves ample time and, and preparation and awareness of death, the making of amends with neighbors and loved ones, and preparation, time of prayer and meditation and contemplation before we go to meet our Savior and our judge. And this is reflected actually in the great litany in the Book of Common Prayer. We're actually going to pray it this Sunday coming up. It's, and just to warn you, y'all, it's pretty extreme. Like you read this and you're like, wow, that's a lot, you know. But hey, at least once a year, we need to be reminded of the gravity of life the gravity of the decisions that we're making in this life and the things that we're doing. Um, one of the petitions there, though, asked that God would deliver us from all oppression, conspiracy, and rebellion, from violence, battle, and murder, and from dying suddenly and unprepared. So there it is. There's this profound sense in the Christian tradition of the value of being properly prepared to die and indeed of meditating on your death long before death comes for you. In the scriptures, there's an awareness of death that seems to me to be connected to the embrace of limits and the importance of living wisely. Psalm 90 asks that God would teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And Ecclesiastes 3 says that as far as our earthly destiny is concerned, we share it with all animals. We have no advantage over the animals as far as death is concerned. From dust we are, and to dust we shall return. When I impose ashes on you later today, I'm going to literally say those words from Ecclesiastes 3. And indeed, and just, you know, as, I, like, as um, we are meditating on this, as we're meditating on this reality, like that should be striking to us. We should just be struck with how similar our destiny is to the whole rest of the creation. One benefit of meditating on our deaths is that it forces us to reckon with these most important and central questions in life with urgency and with passion. It helps us to see what St. Paul means in our passage today when he says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. You might not get another one. Prepare for your death before it comes to you. I mean, even in the best case scenario, we only get a century in which to live. More likely, we'll have less than that. My neighbor, I just heard this yesterday. I was talking to one of my other neighbors, and he was like, hey, did you hear about Jack? And I was like, no, I didn't hear. He's like, he just died in the hospital, like on the table. And I was like, wasn't he like 60? Yeah, he was 60 years old. It's not a lot of time that we have in this world. Living with this fact forces us to move from a fixation on what David Brooks calls the resume virtues, building up, you know, our accomplishments, to focusing instead on the eulogy virtues. What do we want people to say about us? What do we want to have been true about us? What do we want people to say truthfully about us when we die, right? What Brooks means by this, I think, is what death forces us to think about the kind of person I want to be and how I want to be remembered by the people whose lives I have touched rather than on what kinds of experiences have I had? What kinds of pleasures have I experienced? What kind of stuff do I have? What kind of accomplishments do I have? Even like, what is my legacy? Death makes me ask the question, what is my life for and what should I be doing with the time that has been allotted to me? Now, these are really, really important questions. I think we should sit with them. 
The capacity to live wisely is crucial to the life of the Christian disciple. Wisdom, which is a major scriptural category, is the capacity to discern the best course among options that are not objectively sinful. Like we're given the outer boundaries. The Lord tells us, here are the ways to, like, to avoid transgression. Don't do these things. Do these things, right? But there's a huge range of ambiguity and grayness in life, right? And this, so St. Paul says in our passage today, wisdom is actually necessary to live that well. We need to live well so that we do not receive the grace of God in vain, so that we learn to follow him in these places of ambiguity. We're not talking about law or duty, actually. We're talking about art and skill that comes from a clarity about the character I want to have and what I want to have accomplished with the time allotted to me. This is even clearer in Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul exhorts the Ephesian believers, be very careful about how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. There you go. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So, gaining a heart of wisdom, that is a crucial reason why we spend time at least once a year, but I hope more than that, remembering that one day we are going to die. But actually, it's not the most important reason for remembering our deaths. The most important reason to remember that one day we're going to die is so that we may learn to claim one of the greatest gifts that Jesus has given us in his death and resurrection. And that is the victory over death. That is the ability to live without the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, y'all, I I encourage you, go read this passage. It's like a drive-by nuclear attack. I love Hebrews 2. It says that Jesus shared in our humanity so that he might break the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do you hear that? One of the great victories that Jesus has won for us on his cross and through his resurrection is freedom from the slavery of the fear of death. St. Paul echoes this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Part of Christian discipleship, part of following Jesus as his apprentice is to learn how to face your own death and the death of everyone you love without despair or terror. Let me be clear about what I mean here and what I don't mean. I do not mean that you are to learn to face the prospect of death without sorrow. Or that in experiencing the death of loved ones, we should be stoic and tearless or without feeling. I don't mean that at all. Look, all you have to do is look at the life of Jesus to know that that's not what this means. Jesus is hurt at the death of his friend Lazarus. He is hurt at the prospect of the death of all of us, whom he is no longer called servants, but friends. The commentator Frederick Dale Bruner writes that the world's and the church's anguish in the experience of death breaks Jesus' heart. But what I mean is to be able to confront death with the awareness that it is the final enemy to be destroyed. It's a formidable foe, but it's no longer invulnerable. Before Christ, St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, death is a universal sovereign. It defeats everybody but no more because Christ has broken through the impenetrable dome which death has enclosed humanity with. He is the first fruits, Paul tells us, of those who have been raised from the dead. 
When Christ returns, we will be raised from the dead too. And we will have a resurrection like his in our bodies, transformed, filled with divine life. Do we know what that looks like? No, we don't. But we have this great hope because we've seen it happen. It's happened once in Jesus that a body has been raised from the dead and filled with divine life such that it will never die again. And this reality of our resurrection, the future of our resurrection, ripples back to us who are living on this side of death with the, this admonition. Do not be afraid. As Jesus stands before John the divine at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I am the living one, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and to Hades. Our futures are entrusted to the one who has been raised from the dead and who promises that we will have a resurrection like his. And so look at your death and the death of everyone you know, church, and do not be afraid because Christ has overcome death and the grave. The 16th century Anglican poet priest John Donne wrote what I think is one of the most powerful Christian meditations on death that has ever been written. It's called Death Be Not Proud. Show of hands, who's read it? All right. Awesome, awesome, very good. You get like extra gold stars today for having read John Donne. This poem's a really classical kind of composition. It's the form of a sonnet, which is what Shakespeare wrote in, you know. And he's around the same time period as Shakespeare, a little bit after. And moreover, it uses the classical device of apostrophe, which is directing speech to a personified abstract concept. So the whole poem is addressed literally to death. And it says, death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, thou art not so. Once, death was a fierce and matchless enemy, but Christ has humbled death. Death is a tyrant whose days are numbered. He ends his poem saying, death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Why do we begin Lent by meditating on our own deaths? We want to gain the wisdom that comes with the boundedness of our lives. And the awareness, living with the awareness of that is one critical way that we can gain wisdom. But more importantly than that, we do so because Lent is going somewhere. It doesn't end in the somber affirmation of John Keating and Dead Poet Society that we are all food for worms, lads. You know, that, that sort of thing. It ends in the defiant proclamation that death itself shall die because Jesus has overcome death. As the great Orthodox prayer puts it, he has trampled over death by death. And so as you come, as you come forward to receive these ashes today, don't forget what this is all about. We all have a death to die. But when we die, we commit ourselves to the one that promises that when we rise again, we will never die. And after we receive the imposition of ashes, we're also going to receive the Holy Eucharist through which we proclaim the value and the power of the Lord's death until he comes. He has trampled over death by death. We will rise with him, filled with divine life and power. And so I invite you to come. Come and remember your death. But more so, remember the one who will raise you up at the last day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.